So, are you all ready to hear one of my best messages ever? <laughs> so, I'm excited to hear one of my best messages ever. And we are very honored. Um, as many of you know, we have decided to join and be part of the UMJC, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations and Synagogues, and we're going through the membership process, and they have been just so great to work with, and they, they're a great organization. And Judy and I had the honor uh, last year to go out to one of their conferences and uh, got to meet a lot of some of the rabbis that we actually didn't know. You know, it's funny because when we're on the East Coast and they're on the West Coast and, you, you know, you, you hear about them, but you never get to meet them in person. And uh, some old friends we got to meet as well. And, um, but we really felt so welcome to be a part of it. And their executive director is, happens to be in town and she was visiting with us the other day, and I was feeling really cruddy and coughing up a storm, which is a miracle that I'm not right now. And I went, don't you want to preach? <laughs> and she graciously was willing to do it, and I know you're going to be blessed. Uh, it's a little bit about uh, our guest speaker. It's Rebetzin Monique Brock Brumbach, Brumbach, right? It's worse name than mine. <laughs> and her and her husband uh, lead a congregation in California. You're not near the fires yet, are you? They're right there in the fires. So keep them please in prayer, and um, hopefully they'll have a place to go back to. Uh, her and her son, uh, they have a seven-year-old son, correct? And uh, again, she's also part of it. Just to give you how her husband uh, gives her as a, uh, d describes her, um, her and her husband, again, of course, Joshua, lead the congregation there. And his words, uh, my wife is a southern fried Jewish beltway bandit and a smoking, well, and a, wait, it gets better, and a smoking hot human resource attorney. <laughs> so I have to admit, in all the years of me preaching, I have never gotten to introduce a guest speaker as being smoking hot. <laughs> so, on that accord, we all please welcome Monique as she comes up and shares. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi Scott. I can't You're believe that's still up on the internet. It, Those you know, are some, <laughs> that's some newlywed um, descriptions happening there. We used to have a blog that we would write about. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. As Rabbi Scott said, we had, I had a great time getting to know them a little bit when they came to our annual Winter Leadership Conference that we had um, in Dallas in January. And we have another one coming up in uh, Jacksonville, Florida in January. We hope we'll see them there. Uh, it's really nice to, to meet many new faces, and I'll stick around after the service for a while. I'd love to meet many of you. I want to talk this week about our Torah portion, which is Parashat Noach which means that we're back in the early pages of Genesis and we're talking and we're praying and we're thinking about our primordial origins. What I want to do is spend the brief time that I have with you sharing a couple nuggets of wisdom that we generally miss if we rush through these early chapters of our holiest texts. There are a lot of really beautiful concepts and constructs of human life, plant life, animal life, that are really easy to miss if you rush through this stuff. Now, you can never talk about the beginning of something without also talking about its end, just as you can't talk about the end without discussing the beginning. 
So that's why it's so essential that as soon as we come to the end of the Torah, what do we do on Simchat Torah? We roll all the way back to the beginning without hesitation. So we're going to give a few little peeks into God's unfurling redemptive plan for all of creation, not just for the Jews, the nations too, not just the humans, but even the animals and the plants, and not just the earth, but the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, and the rest of the heavens. So let's get started. Last week, where were we? We were in the garden. It's in the garden that God gives us what I like to call the prime directive of human life, which is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and conquer it and hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and every beast that crawls upon the earth. From Parashat Bereshit, we learn that work, avodah, can you say avodah? avodah. Work is holy. It's not a punishment to work. It's only a punishment to toil. As it says in Genesis 2.15, God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to tend it. That sounds like work, right? It's holy work, caring for creation. We also learn that creation is good. What's the Hebrew word for good? Tov. God is speaking things into existence and is also then speaking a value judgment over the things he has created. And the value is this, tov, 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 tov. It's good, it's good, it's good. When is the first time that we read the words lo tov in the Torah? Genesis 2.18, Vayomer Adonai Elohim lo tov hayota adam levado. Do you hear the poetry there? It is not good for man to be alone. It doesn't say woman to be alone. It says not good for man to be alone. <laughs> I will fashion an ezer kenegdo. This is my translation. A strong mirror for him. A strong mirror... Monique, how on earth can you translate it this way? Doesn't it mean um, help meet? Doesn't it mean suitable partner? As there can go, that's probably what it says in your Bibles, right? But my translation comes from the Hebrew. Ezer, Ezer means help in a very literal way. So it's very normal to say helper. But it isn't help in a domestic way. It isn't help in a pick up my dirty socks and stroke my fragile ego kind of way. <laughs> because who is called an Ezer to Israel? God is an Ezer to Israel. And generally, when are we asking God to be our Ezer? When we're heading into war. So it's very helpful to have your wife in your corner when you're confronting an enemy, isn't it? Better to have her in your corner than at your front. Kenegdo, the root of this word is neged, which means many things. It's uh, related to something's position. When something is neged, it is in front of you, or it's blocking your view, or it's corresponding to you, or more poetically, in my translation, it is mirroring you. It's a helpful mirror. So Ezer Kenegdo can be translated, help me, suitable partner, but I like strong mirror, or more, even more poetically, constructive opponent. 
Picture someone holding you up by leaning against you, pressing against each other, rather than someone above your head or below your feet. And this is why the woman is taken from the man's side, not from his feet, not from his skull. She comes from his center. She is equal in value in the sight of God. She is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. He is to honor and care for her. She is to honor and care for him. She is the strong mirror. So we see that when all is good, we can be fruitful and multiply. We can honor and care for each other, and we will not be alone. It is not good to be alone. It is the great affliction of 21st century life that so many people, think about it, we are relative to our ancestors, we are living like kings, are we not? We have flushing toilets, we have grocery stores, we have instant entertainment on our screens, we have on-demand Uber drivers, and yet we feel so extraordinarily isolated. Why is that? Our country is dealing with an epidemic of anxiety and depression. We are self-medicating with marijuana and with opioids. We are desperate to avoid any sense of pain or discomfort. We tiptoe around each other's feelings. We communicate synthetically. We communicate with um, photos on Instagram, with partisan political posts on Facebook. Are you probably guilty? We, we communicate with guns blazing on Fortnite. This is what, you know, teenagers are into right now. With emojis on our text messages. We carry pocket-sized dopamine triggers around with us everywhere we go. Dopamine, that's that, that little happy chemical. You get a little hit of it when someone says like, or someone sends you a little heart emoji, or someone says, thinking of you, bless you, love you. You go, whew, I feel better. It's a little neurochemical hit of validation. But we are still left utterly alone, and the scripture makes clear it is not good to be alone. So then if you don't rush too quickly, there are a few more nuggets I want to share with you from the garden. We learn that there isn't just one important tree in the garden, is there? No, there's two trees. The tree of knowledge and the tree of life. Only one is forbidden to the people, the tree of knowledge. The tree of life is not off limits. And yet the humans never bother to eat of it. Before they're exiled from the garden, also that God could prevent them from eating it in their messed up and their corrupted state. How interesting is it that God would give us the ability to live forever and instead of eternal life, we would choose knowledge. Remember this point. Remember what Yeshua says, I came so that you would have abundant life. He doesn't say, I came so that you would have abundant knowledge of all things. In fact, in many cases, he says, that's not for you to know. Because what would we do with the knowledge? The knowledge has power. We could do something terrible with the knowledge. So it's life that God wants for us, and not the kind of life that gives us the power to destroy all creation. 
So this is why he sent us out of the garden, because what could we do now if we put all of our bigger, gianter brains together towards a common purpose? We could destroy everything. We could destroy ourselves. That common purpose could be for good or it could be for evil. So God limits the spans of our lives. He prevents us from tasting earthly immortality, lest we destroy everything. And the consolation prize is that instead we get the blessing of making new life by having children. So we die, but they continue living. There's so much more in Brashit, but let's move on to Noah. Let's move on to this week's portion. Um, as our commentator shared this morning, Noah's name is an abbreviation of the word comforter or consoler. His father gives him this name with the blessing, this one will provide us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands out of the very soil which the Lord placed under a curse. Why is the earth placed under a curse? Who, who, who got the earth cursed? Adam. The sin of Adam. Remember God says, cursed be the earth because of you. So Noah's father, we see, is raising his son with an awareness that his own son is going to be some kind of a redeemer figure. This is why he gives them the name that he does. And of course, you know the broad strokes of the rest of the story. God tells Noah, I'm going to flood the earth, so build a teva for yourself and your family and all the animals and go hide yourselves in there. Now, in your head, you probably have a picture of this. And it's probably wrong. It's not a boat in the classical sense. It's a box floating in the water for a full year. We know that Moses is sent into the water in a miniature version of this box. It's also called the Teva by his mother, Yocheved. It's almost better to picture this vessel like you would a coffin, a box floating in the water. Now, I grew up in New Orleans, and if you've ever been there, you know that you can't, we can't dig very deep graves because the water table is right underneath the topsoil, and the coffins would just pop up to the surface during a flood. So we build these above-ground mausoleums, and that's where we put our dead. How many of you have gone to visit there and taken photos of some of these interesting cemeteries? So what do you know when there is a big flood, like there was in Hurricane Katrina? The coffins get floating. And some of them end up in the streets, and some of them end up in people's backyards. This is what Noah and his family were floating in, a box. Inside the teva, inside the box, are precious lives. Outside is chaos and waste. Inside the box, what is happening? It's so cool. The lion and the lamb are lying down together. He brings in only male and female of each type of animal, and when they come out, they're still male and female of each type of animal, which means those animals are not eating each other, which means maybe they're asleep for a whole year. Who knows, right? You could speculate about this for a long time. But it's amazing. It provides us a little glimpse into the future, into the messianic age, when the lion and the lamb will lie down together. So over a year later, they emerge from this box onto dry land, and if you're paying close attention, you'll learn that mankind before Noah was vegan. Is this a shock to you guys? No. Okay, you guys know the Torah. I brought the wrong sermon to you today. So we learn that humans can eat meat, but they cannot eat blood because it's the life of the animal. So the implication is very clear to us. You should respect 
life. Life is sacred. Even the lives of animals matter to God. Humans still have the prime directive to be fruitful and multiply, to look after God's creatures, to till the soil. We still have that. But now, in addition to the fruit of the trees and the harvest from the crops, we can also eat a limited number of animals. Now we can shed their blood, but we can never eat their blood. Now finally, we come to the story of Bavel. And this is why I came here to talk to you today, this mysterious city. Let's look at chapter 11 of Genesis, if you have your scriptures with you. I'll read to you a, a sort of somewhat adapted translation. It might be a little bit different than what you have in your lap. Everyone on earth had the same language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them hard. Bricks served them as stones and bitumen served them as mortar. And they said, Come, let us build us a city and a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for ourselves, else we be scattered all over the world. The Lord came down to look at the city and tower that man had built, and the Lord said, If as one people, with one language for all, this is how they have begun to act, then nothing that they propose to do will be out of their reach. Let us go down then and confound their speech there, so that they shall not understand one another's speech. Thus the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Bavel, confusion, because there the Lord confounded the speech of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You have heard this story before. You have maybe attempted to explain this story to your children. You have read to them from an illustrated children's Bible and tried to make sense of it, right? What is the problem here? Is the problem the size of the tower? Does God confuse and scatter them because of some kind of sin of architecture? We have skyscrapers today. Does this, does this displease God? Is God threatened by very tall buildings? No, that's not it. Okay, well, what about the bricks? Maybe the sin is in the bricks. Indeed, their use of bricks marks a change in human civilization. People are not living nomadic lives anymore in their tents. Instead, they're baking small clumps of earth into bricks that are as hard as stone, and they're creating permanent shelters. Is, is that sinful? Do you live in a brick house today? Is God displeased? Maybe it's a sin of idolatry. Maybe this is some kind of insult to God. Maybe the people were going to build this tower so that they could put an idol on the top of it. Or as some kind of insurance policy against another flood. You've read some of the Midrash. There are some very interesting theories in this direction. Here's one theory. The people felt threatened by the possibility of another devastating flood, and they thought, let's build a tower that will be higher than the waters. Furthermore, let's make the tower high enough that we can pierce the heavens with axes and drain all the water with them, making it impossible for God to bring another flood if we vex him again. It's a funny theory, right? One rabbi, one rabbinic commentator, points out how silly this is. If you wanted to build a tower that would be big enough, then why would you start in a valley? You should have built it on a mountain instead. 
An another Midrash says that the people wanted to put an idol on the top, which would hold its sword up to the heavens, and in this way, that idol would fight God in case he ever decided to send another flood. Another rabbinic perspective is that the builders of Babel didn't actually sin, and God didn't actually punish them. And you can see hints of this. God doesn't destroy Babel with some kind of affliction, like hail or fire or earthquake or flood, does he? Instead, he merely confuses their speech so that they wander off and create their own little tribes and tongues where small bands of them can actually understand each other. You can ask legitimately whether this is actually punishment or if it's merely a redirection. Most of you have raised toddlers, yes? When you're an innocent little chubby-faced toddler with the roly-poly thighs and the darling little eyelashes is wandering over into something dangerous, what do you do? Is it good parenting? to whack the baby on the face and scream at them? No. You redirect her. Look, look, over here, mommy has something shiny and interesting. Or maybe you scoop him up and you give him a kiss so that he doesn't bring the bookcase crashing down on his head. So it's legitimate to look at the story and say, maybe this isn't a punishment in the classical sense. Maybe this is some loving parental guidance from God because no one loses their life. But even this perspective doesn't really finish filling in all of the blanks. So let's look closely at the beginning of the story, the opening lines. Again, we're, we're at the beginning of chapter 11. Everyone on earth had the same language and the same words. A few verses later, the same people who speak all the same language. Now remember, this is everyone on earth. In our heads, I think sometimes we think that there is this, this pagan city in the panoply of cities called Babel, and, and it's those guys who are a problem. But no, actually, it's very clear. This is everyone. Everyone on earth. All of the descendants of Noah are all living in this city. They say to each other, come, let us build a city to make a name for ourselves, else we'll be scattered all over the world. What is wrong with speaking a single language? I mean, wouldn't the world be better if we could all understand each other? Wouldn't it just be ideal if everyone on earth spoke English? Or maybe Hebrew? What's wrong with, let's make a name for ourselves, else we'll be scattered all over the world? We were resisting the prime directive of human life. Noah comes out of the ark, and what does God command? Be fruitful and multiply, spread across the earth and increase on it. We didn't want to fill the earth. We wanted to stay in one place and speak one language and think all the same thoughts and do all the same things and wear all the same clothes and eat all the same foods. Perhaps if we could grow a single civilization in a single place, we could make a Shem, a name for ourselves. We could become like God by combining our efforts. Well, this isn't what God wanted. We see from the earliest pages of our holy scriptures that the prime directive of human life is to make a variety of nations, tongues, and tribes. The prime directive of human life is not totalitarianism. It is not uniformity. 
We are not all supposed to look the same, or act the same, or dress the same, or think the same thoughts. Human skin is supposed to develop into a broad range of complexions. Human tongues are supposed to develop a broad range of expressions. The Osa people speak with clicks. The Jewish people speak with the backs of our throats. <laughs> the Chinese people speak with tones. The Irish people speak with songs. The Caribbean people speak with waves. Human cuisines are supposed to develop variety and texture with flavors of sweet and sour and bitter and spicy and tangy and umami. It doesn't please God for everyone to eat the same things that come in boxes and drink things that come in plastic bottles. <laughs> Think about it. It's so weird. We have severed our connection and our relationship with the plants and the animals that we are charged to care for when all of our food comes shrink-wrapped from a factory in a box, haven't we? I don't want to make you feel guilty about your diet. It's a condemnation of our whole society, not you and what you have in your pantry, okay? Although if that speaks to you, you know, let it speak to you. <laughs> we learn also from the story of Babel that sometimes what looks to us like an excessive amount of justice is actually an act of mercy. So the people unify under a single language in a single city in a single place and God says this will not do so he confuses our speech and thank God that he did this. Because what a boring world we would live in if we were all the same, right? And as we see in the very beginning of next week's Torah portion, if there were not human diversity, there never would have been any Jews. Because God makes his first promise to Abraham in chapter 12, which is, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Oh, it's God making someone's name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And all of the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. Do you understand what's happening here? The people of Bavel gather in a place of their own choosing and try to make a name for themselves. God confuses and scatters them. Then God chooses a man and God tells him, Lech Lecha, go to the place that I will show you. And God decides that God will make his name great. When God even cuts his covenant with Abraham, is it because of anything that Abraham did? Is it because Abraham's so amazing? No, he puts Abraham to sleep. Just as he puts Adam to sleep, so that Adam cannot take credit for the woman who comes out of him, God says, no, I made the woman out of you. In the same way with Abraham, he says, Abraham, you don't get to take credit for this. You don't get to say, oh, God chose us because we're so smart, and we're so wonderful, and we're so learned, and we're so amazing. No, come on, Jewish people are like any other people on the earth. We have our problems. We have our shortcomings. It's not because of anything we have done. And how does God make Abraham's name great? through the Messiah. Without human diversity, there never would have been any Jews. Without the Jews, there never would have been a Messiah. And without a Messiah, there never would be the promise of peace. Without the Messiah, all of the Gentiles of the earth would still be worshiping rocks and sticks. Because of the Messiah, we are moving rapidly towards a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that the God of Israel is the only God in the heavens above and on the earth below. So this is the master plan of creation. Be fruitful and multiply, grow in diversity, make families and nations, and spread across the earth. I'm going to choose one of the many families among you. I will make a nation out of this family, and through this nation family, all the families of the earth will bless themselves by you. It's such an interesting expression, right? That all the families of the earth will bless themselves by you. Have you ever thought about that, what that means? You can bless yourself by someone else. It's a cool concept. Here's the, my question. Is this blessing possible if every person in the world is Jewish? No. No. What can be so unsettling to people who study the scriptures and who are trying to diligently to follow the Messiah is the particularity of God's covenant with the Jewish people. The reason why Paul writes the book of Romans is because these Gentile followers of the Jewish Messiah, this little group of them that are in Rome and are starting to establish themselves, have already gotten on a high horse and decided that we're better. And God didn't really choose them. We're the new Israel. It's us. Those guys, they've been cut off. It's all over, right? He writes that letter because it's a very strong human inclination to want to feel important. You want to make a name for yourself. And when you study the scriptures, you see that God has chosen this undeserving people and chosen to make a great name out of them. And it immediately provokes a response of, hey, what about me? I want to be special too. Why can't I be special too? So this cuts against our human desire for esteem, for sameness, for totalitarianism, and for zero-sum thinking. Think about how much you wish that people would agree with you on everything. How much, do you, how much more peaceful would your marriage be if your spouse agreed with you on everything? How much more peaceful would your family be if your children could just see sense? How much more peaceful would your neighborhood be if everyone had the same values? How much more peaceful would the city and the nation be if everyone was operating from the same paradigm, right? We're very easy, very good at casting stones at each other. And Yeshua is constantly challenging us to look at yourself. You have a blank in your own eyes. We have this human inclination towards sameness. We don't like to deal with real conflict. We don't want to confront someone who thinks or feels differently than us. This is the challenge of fulfilling the Great Commission, to go out to the corners of the earth and make disciples of all the nations, it says. What is involved in making disciples of all the nations? Are we going to make them all look identical to us? No, we have this challenge now of learning Tell me about your culture and your cuisine and your language and let me get inside your head and understand how you think. And maybe we can find some ways of connection so that I can point you to the God of Israel. That's a big challenge. Another thing that's unsettling about these stories in these earliest pages of the scriptures is watching God mete out justice. It can be tough. You feel like, really God? Like, you have to destroy everything? Did you, did you really have to go that far? And something I've struggled with personally in my own walk with God 
Some, but I've come to a better place. I've come to realize that sometimes what looks like an act of excessive justice is actually an act of mercy. Getting exiled from the garden looks like excessive justice. All they did was eat the fruit. Like, can't you just forgive them? And can we, why, are we, why do we have to leave the garden? Why do we have to go through 6,000 years of misery to get to redemption? But you see that it's actually an act of mercy God is restraining the power of man to destroy when he exiles us from the garden. Sometimes also an act that looks like excessive amounts of mercy is actually an act of justice. Think about the prophet Jonah, who after he goes and preaches to Nineveh and they repent, he gets mad about it. He's like, I didn't want to come here, God. I knew you were going to forgive these people because you're so merciful. And they don't deserve it. Right? He's not happy. And for years I have judged Jonah. For years when I read the story, I'm like, Jonah, just get with the program. God is merciful. Just get over yourself. Deal with it. Look at it in context. The Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, they were the worst enemies of Israel. And that repentance thing that happened, it didn't stick. They didn't become friends to Israel. So God spares them from destruction, and Jonah almost rightly says, this isn't going to last. They don't deserve this. They're going to be a scourge to our people. God, you should be a just God with these people. You should smite them like you promised to do to all of our enemies. And God shows mercy. It's a hard thing to walk with God, to walk, to try to live righteously and to suffer while you're living righteously. Meanwhile, someone's living wickedly, and they're making all this money, and they're getting all this acclaim and accolades, and they've got, and you're like, God, come on, don't you see me? It's our inclination towards esteem, right? We want to make a name for ourselves. That's not the point of creation. Finally, we learn from these stories that true righteousness is asking God to in always incline himself towards mercy. When God reveals himself to Moshe, when he hides him in the rock, and he comes out and he sings his, the song, Adonai, Adonai, El-Rachum V'chanum, Erech HaPayim Emet, God is saying, I am merciful, I am slow to anger, I am abounding in, in, in righteousness. He leads with those qualities. At the end of the song comes the, yeah, so I afflict people who don't obey me. <laughs> but he leads with mercy. So when God says to Noah, I'm going to flood the world, Noah doesn't argue with God. Noah goes, okay, I'll build the ark. When God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what does Abraham do? He bargains with God. What if you can find 100 righteous men? What about 80? What about 50? What gets all the way down to 10? When God says to Moshe, I'm tired of these people. I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. What does Moshe say to God? That's going to make you look really bad. <laughs> Noah doesn't do that. And this is why he's considered righteous in his generation. 
He's not righteous for all time. He's righteous in his generation. So we learn that it's righteousness to ask God to incline towards mercy. So that neighbor of yours who lives in wickedness, who's getting all the stuff, ask God to be merciful to that person. I want to challenge you to do that. Now, finally, in the spirit of building unity but not uniformity, we have this amazing organization called the UMJC, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, which Beth and I is in the process of joining. I want to tell you a little bit about it. We were founded 40 years ago. 40 years ago was 1979. You, you've heard many, many times in this congregation what was happening in the 60s and 70s. 1967 was the Six-Day War. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit among, upon the Jewish people. Thousands of Jewish people were coming to know the Messiah of Israel. And it created a problem. What do we do? Jewish people have always been coming to faith and knowledge of the Messiah from the, you know, from the very beginning, but never before had we felt a sense of, of strength in our Jewish identity. Never before did we feel we could assert that we need our own place to worship, and we're going to worship as God wants us to, and we're going to raise our children to have a Jewish identity, and we're, we're going to strengthen ourselves. We're not just going to assimilate into sameness, into Bavel. We want to be different. So that's why we started Messianic congregations like this one. Forty years ago, the leaders of many of these congregations realized, I can't do this on my own, in my own little outpost in Michigan or in New York or in Florida or in Georgia or wherever. And so they came together and formed a union. We are not a denomination. We don't get to tell our member congregations what to do or how to worship or which rabbi that they can have, you know, lead them. We, we don't do that. What we do is we support, unite, and strengthen our congregations. We provide training, we provide resources, and we provide ways for people to bring Messianic Judaism home, into their homes, so that your Messianic Jewish life isn't just something you do on Shabbat, but it's something that you do every day of the week. So I want to encourage you as the congregation is going through this process of becoming members that you don't just leave this process to Rabbi Scott and Judy. Of course, they're going to take the lead here. But don't just treat this as, oh, yeah, that's the thing that we send them to. And they come back and they bring their nice rapport. Ah, isn't that cool, right? But I want to challenge you to get connected yourself to the wider Messianic Jewish community. Because when you do get connected, you will realize we're not uniform. Our many member congregations are very different. Some are extremely traditional. Some are very charismatic. Some are um, really large. Some are really small. Everyone, people have different ideas about different things. You want to get into an argument, you know, talk about the end times. Um, <laughs> we have some different ideas. There are essentials that we agree on. Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel. He calls us to live as a holy nation. And we cannot just assimilate into sameness. So we're doing this endeavor together. But the way we do it is different. And it's shaped by the places that we are and by the people who are in our pews. But I want to encourage you to connect. We have a conference this summer in Ohio, which you are all welcome to attend. It's going to be in mid-July in Columbus, Ohio. We have a, a weekly email newsletter where you can get weekly Torah commentaries. That's at umjc.org. You can sign up for that. We also have a program called Friends of the Union. That's for our diehards. That's for people who want to go all in. Um, so I encourage you to investigate that. Write down the website umjc.org and just peruse and get, get familiar. 
Look at where all the other congregations are. You may have friends who attend some of the congregations in that network. I want to bless us this week that we should see God's preference for diversity Amen. and for complexity, for being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subdue it. I want to bless you that you should have a perspective change as you look at your neighbor who's experiencing wealth or fame or splendor or romance in a way that makes you a little bit jealous. I want to bless you that you should pray that God would have mercy on that person and that through you, other families would be able to bless themselves. So Shabbat Shalom.